Artscape is produced on the traditional Coast Salish territories of the Songhees Lekwungen-speaking peoples and the West Saanich Sinchothan-speaking peoples. Artscape is a production of CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria and is made possible with the generous support from the BC Arts Council. Now in its third season, Artscape seeks to investigate the diverse arts and culture landscape around us. This episode is produced by Kenny Craig and explores Afrofuturism. It includes interviews with local artists Justine Chambers, Ruby Smith-Diaz, Charles Campbell, and Bernice Thomas, and curator Michelle Jakes. I'm an alien from outer space. I'm a cyber girl without a face, a harder of mine. Behold, for we are funkadelic. We are not of your world, but we have come to free your mind. For if you free your mind, you free your relationship to time. After the end of the world, don't you know that yet? It's after the end of the world. Don't you know that yet? It's after the end of the world. Don't you know that yet? It's after the end of the world. Don't you know that yet? My name is Ruby Smith Diaz. Um, I'm an Afro Latina multidisciplinary artist and arts based facilitator, um, as well as video editor that's based in Vancouver, uh, Musqueam, Tsleil Waututh, and Territory. I'm Anne Bernice Thomas, and I am a spoken word artist, a theater artist, a filmmaker, all around swell person, um, part-time model, part-time actor, <laughs> whatever's needed to be done, really. My name is Justine Chambers. <clears throat> On paper, I use my middle initial, which is an A because I have an aunt whose name is also Justine Chambers. Um, and I'm a dancer and a choreographer, a teacher, a dance artist, contemporary dance artist, I think is the proper title I should use. My name is Michelle Jakes, and um, I'm a curator. Right now I work as the chief curator at the Art Gallery of Greater Victoria. Um, but I suppose more generally I, d I identify as a curator and a writer and a sometimes educator. Um, I guess I've really been thinking about Afrofuturism through the lens of the artist Camille Turner, who is based in Toronto. And I've been writing about her work for a few years now. Um, and um, she is somebody who approaches Afrofuturism in a very sort of direct way and um, really sort of thinks about the, the realm of Afrofuturism and how it manifests itself in writing and film and um, as well as visual arts in a, in a kind of comprehensive way. So in a fact, in, in fact, in a way, I'm, I'm sort of uh, Camille's student. In thinking about her work, that's what has introduced me to, to Afrofuturism. And um, most recently, I wrote about her work for um, a publication called Cotoniact, and it's the second volume um, of, of two volumes so far. I don't know if there will be more, but um, it's uh, a series of publications that look at women in performance art. So I was thinking about Camille um, in the context of performance. Excellent. And 
and um, in thinking about what her you know what her contribution is to to performance it seemed most um, fruitful to situate her with within this history of Afrofuturism and um, I was really thinking about her work through the lens of Octavia Butler and um, in the way Camille works, it involves writing and storytelling. Um, she's, she's a very accomplished, um, what would you call it, uh, digital artist. She has okay. a great facility with dig digital technologies. Um, so for me, it's really, it's really interesting because it kind of points to this idea which has been kind of nagging me for a long time, mm. <laughs> which is that, which is that, um, you know, in Euro-Canadian, Euro-North American art, um, the emphasis has um, become focused on dividing the artistic mediums, um, which is maybe a strange thing to say because now everybody's cross-disciplinary and, mm. um, but, you know, when you look at art history over the, the sort of course of the centuries that Western art history focuses on, um, it's about painting, it's about sculpture, it's about architecture, drawing, dance, if we get broader beyond visual arts. Um, and I always think about that moment in the early 20th century when European artists started to look at uh, African art and other um, traditional world cultures and their cultural production and like started mining those cultures for visual imagery to incorporate into their painting. I always think to myself, what what would have happened if instead of doing that, they went, uh, oh, art doesn't have to be so medium specific. Like art can be anything. Art can incorporate all of the modes of expression. Right. And then the way art in the 20th century looked would have been completely different. Um, I always say that the reason I think about this so much is because I think that George Clinton is the greatest artist of the 20th century. Yes. <laughs> the first few times I saw George Clinton, um, I was really just approaching his music from the perspective of somebody who loved, uh, you know, soul and R&B and even disco and then, uh, you know, discovering funk on vinyl was great yeah. enough, but seeing George Clinton and Bootsy in performance <coughs> was truly amazing. But it was actually, um, you know, not seeing them that first made me think, these people need to be considered in the context of art history. Mm -hmm. It was going to a Laurie Anderson um, performance and I love Laurie Anderson but for some reason when I went to this Laurie Anderson performance I was thinking like she kind of crosses music and performance art why why is it possible for that to happen with a white artist mm -hmm. but not with a black artist when George Clinton and Parliament Funkadelic and Grace Jones yes. and Sun Ra, when it's so performative, why are they not considered in the context of um, visual art history? Mm -hmm. And um, I sort of came to the conclusion that it just has too good a beat. <laughs> <laughs> Behold. But we are funkadelic. We are not of your world. But we have come to free your mind. For if you free your mind, you free your relationship.
And I became, I became really obsessed with that idea because, um, like those musicians or artists are all people who have such a connection Mm -hmm. to the lineage of, um, African masquerade and ceremony and performance and music. So... You know, I jokingly say it's because it has a beat, but I guess what that means is that it belongs to that lineage, which is not how art history is is defined yes. Yes. Uh, in the Euro-North American world. Right. Um, so that's something that I think about about a lot about how to go back and change the telling of art history. Right. So the idea for the Afrofuturism Trading Card Workshop mostly came out of a feeling that I had within myself of uh, honestly despair at the amount of black death and black uh, violence that I had seen in, especially highlighted in the last few years. Um, I mean, I think Black Lives Matter and um, the amount of media access that we have highlighted a situation that has been um, underlying now for obviously hundreds of years. But seeing that heightening dynamic in the media really affected me and and feeling like I couldn't do anything about it. I and I and and even scrolling through my Facebook feed, through my social media feed, it was just honestly the most demoralizing thing to see so young people um, getting killed by police or white supremacists or in, in some cases white supremacist police officers right and so for me it was really important especially living in a city um, such as Vancouver where the black population makes up no more than one percent uh, to create a program or a kind of project that would engage black youth in something where they got to create art that was uplifting, that was um, also defined and created by them, and also where they got to choose how they wanted to be portrayed. And specifically, Afrofuturism to me was especially important because um, it puts the onus on the youth to create these representations and to also engage them in imagining of a society of a world where systems such as um, you know like patriarchal domination um, when we talk about uh, racist systems white supremacist systems um, classist systems things like that in a world where those things may not exist or if they do exist where they have the abilities to actually do something about it so it's kind of a reimagining that for me gave a lot of power and a lot of room for our imaginations to expand and grow. And um, for me, it felt like a particularly important time to do this kind of project with Black youth uh, living in Vancouver. Um, well, I'll tell you, it's sort of first incarnation was actually when I was completing my MA. Um, at Goldsmiths and it was also the first time I really took on performance and it was almost done in protest. Um, I was doing primarily painting at the time and I found my work just constantly being either pigeonholed or disregarded um, because um, basically because I was black Um, and so I would either put in a position where people if if there were things that explicitly spoke about race in there they would kind of say oh of course you're black you're talking about race and that would be the end of the discussion um or it would be or if there were you know more painterly moments it was like oh well that's kind of derivative of what art white artists do <laughs> and it was like this this position that i could no win there was a really there was a sort of no win to it and i um and because i was constantly being kind of put on the spot as a as a black person as if I was sort of some stereotypical manifestation of that um, I decided I was going to create a persona which was a stereotypical manifestation of a Jamaican black guy um, which was I basically took off the 
the character um, from The Harder They Come, um, Ivanhoe Martin, who um, kind of a bit of a kind of a hip gangster character in the film, and I put him against a backdrop of um, this painted backdrop of a scene from Barbarella or the spaceship from Barbarella, um, and it was sort of to put this disconnect between this sort of past that I was being kind of, or this stereotype that I was kind of being pushed into, and this sort of kind of vision of the future which I was being denied. Don't joke with your life longer. Give me my bicycle. If it's your bicycle, take it now. So the performance was was really actually just talking directly to the class. I just, I just sort of stood there and and I was the artwork and I'm like, you know, if you want to confront my me as a black person and my artwork as being from a black person, actually you're going to have to confront me directly. Um, but it was very much against that sort of the sort of um, kind of outdated future <laughs> backdrop from from this Barbarella, and that was the first time I kind of got this sort of inkling of that. Um, that that intersection might be interesting, and that, that that oh, kind of thinking about the future was was a way to kind of um, yeah, envisioning the future was um, just added a certain new kind of potential to the work, um, and then the really the more recent manifestations have come through. Uh, another performance character that I've been developing, Actor Boy, and originally he was a character that was rooted in the past. Um, so it's a there's a Jamaican carnival con- uh, tradition called John Canoe, and Actor Boy is one of the sort of set characters in that carnival tradition. And um, I was taking him as this sort of it sort of peaked around the time of emancipation in Jamaica. So it was. Um, you know, pers- it was active during the time of, time of slavery. It was sort of one of the few days where 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 um, slaves actually had a had a brief holiday. Um, it was this sort of disruptive time in the sort of for the plantocracy, um, and a time of agency and creativity for for the slaves. And I was imagining this character from the past coming into our present. And as I started to work with that character, he kind of became a character from the future instead of the past. So he was a sort of the future that was made, a future that was made possible through that past. It's like what, what happened to the promise of emancipation was kind of the, the question. And looking at the kind of problems inherent in Jamaican society at the moment. Um, so he was a way of kind of bringing, bringing that idea of a, of a different future, a future like that moment where where freedom and the future was opened up for um, for you know the majority of, of people living in Jamaica who were slaves, um, and a way of kind of bringing that idea of, of maybe a more utopic future um, and and looking looking at the present with it. So um, yeah, he became. Yeah, instead of a character from the past, this character from this other future, and that's really where my work um, took a, a major turn towards um, towards what what I now call Afrofuturism. I, at the time, um, it was not a very common; it wasn't a very common or well-known term. And certainly, in the time that I was doing the the Jim Screechy performances back in um, back in university, there was no there just was no language mm-hmm. around to discuss that. Yeah. 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 yeah, and sort of Sun Ra and um, those guys have become really important and as kind of visionaries for for this what's now almost a movement, mm-hmm. um, really. And the and I think originally it was sort of spoken about in the terms of science fiction, um, and then it has has really been picked up a lot um, by visual artists as a way of yeah literally um, you know creating a kind of future mm-hmm. a future imaginary. Um, and for me, it just it just holds this tremendous potential. It it, it um, yeah that that I- idea of holding the future um, just 
enables such this richness to come out of the work. Um, and instead of, you know, always being pushed into, you know, for African artists, for example, to be pushed into a kind of traditional, um, you know, their work being compared against their traditional um, traditional production or or against Western production, which is kind of, um, it, it allows a kind of a, a tweak on that. And it's like actually to, t- to take ownership of the future because we're always pushed into the past. Um, there's a British writer called uh, Leon Rain- Wainwright that talks about um, how communities aren't only... Um, you know, specifically communities of color or outside of Western art centers, it's not that they're necessarily it's not their geography that's the problem. It's their temporality that's that's the that's seen as the problem. It's like they're seen as 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 the past, as something from yes, um, something from a past, either at a dis- different stage in modernism or um, with their traditional with. Um, you know, or is stagnant with within a kind of tradition or so on, but their relationship to time is 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 kind of distorted, um, and who owns the contemporary is the Western, um, you know, the Western art centers, and I think uh, Afrofuturism in particular kind of takes that and turns it on its head. It's like actually you don't own the future, and in fact, the the there's a kind of deadness to to Western art production now, I think, which, which is like it's it, with postmodernism, it's like felt like it had hit a dead end, and now that kind of ownership of of a vision of the future is being taken up by these communities that were previously excluded. Excellent, excellent. Thank you. Um, yeah, it's it, two things. It gets is a kind of ability to revision mm-hmm. the past right. um, as and its effect on the present and fu- and future um, and and kind of chart a different a different trajectory so there a lot i mean even quite a lot of you know afrofuturist work there will be an, an element that looks at memory or um, right. or the past and it's not not an abandonment of that of that past it's just um, it's kind of charting a different tra- trajectory for that so it's kind of like there's a hallway I and mean, then there's rooms on either there's doors on either side, and I forget what the doors were, but I remember one room specifically. And so the doors were the we kind of follow with me, past, the, the spoken word piece, and they carried and on. I in, go into this room, uh, like the cycle, but the doors weren't marked. Silent, so I didn't know which and one was which. A woman so know was who's to go me in on stage, and the stage and is so filled with water, or the and there's a microphone the just outside of the water um, on the stage, like the and she's room in front of it, the screaming woman, you can't hear anything because she's just theater full of water, drowning in the past. And I stay there for a bit. Is that where my art's going to take me? Like screaming to a microphone and no one hearing a word I'm saying. Yeah, and that, and that exactly that simultaneous life where you can see kind of everything in front of you all of the time, and you're just kind of doing your best to change it and make it the best that it can be, which is tough when it's not quite your choice. Yes. <laughs> the carefree black girl in me stopped being afraid of being seen years ago. In fact, it was never on her radar. Instead, she was to Gadar to point inwardly labeled kind of somewhere in between and stop thinking about it when it started to give her anxiety. Carefree black girl me doesn't do anxiety. She goes to music festivals and dances with stress away in her hips and hands and hair. She learned how to dance in Jamaica, mirrored the wind through the palm trees and the wind of the creeks. My mom says that she isn't doing it right. Her mom says dancing is the birthright and the music speaks to the soul the same way love does. Carefree black girl knows these things intimately. One more than the other, admittedly, but she is waiting for her chance to open her heart to some lucky person to love her back infinitely. Like, space, but not in a cliche way, in a carefree, screw cliches, love any way you want, kinda. Let's make love under the full moon and consume the dew and dawn and one final yawn as we fall asleep curled around each other under a yew tree. Carefree black girl me knows intimacy intimately. She treasures the gift of knowing another person, cradling their spirit in her moonlight hands. She has energy for delicacy and has mastered the art of walking on her toes. 
I met her inside of myself. In these past few weeks, when I stopped going to class for no real reason other than I needed to, because my bones ached and my thighs quivered with the weight of holding up this black body, this crumbling temple of purged holiness and stained glass windows, she loves those, says they remind her of saints on crusades. Like the purpose of searching for faith in words, she found herself in words, opened her church and found her windows broken, and she danced on the broken glass in bare feet. And her feet don't bleed. They glide with the pride of living another day. Carefree black girl me erased pain eons ago, says hurt is just as sweet as joy. If you find wisdom in the grief, she knows how to cry. I'm still working on that. My brother says to know, but not to do, is not to know. So I wonder if the carefree black girl in me is just a fantasy because I know her intimately with fingers and pens and words scratched out and rewritten louder. She echoes in my laughter like she was born there, but I do not birth her. Maybe I'm too young to be a mother an author of change in my heart, still healing from grief, nurturing a garden with no rain. Don't get me wrong, I find so much joy in my blackness. But the news has blackness synonymous with pain, has our bodies for sale, our streets filled with pills, our men eaten by jail cells, our children dying and dying and dying. It is so hard to give life when a lifespan is as short as your breath, but she... Carefree black girl stopped being afraid of being seen years ago and stares me down in the mirror every single day, says, breathe, breathe, breathe. For those who can't anymore, for those who will learn how by watching you, says, care is not free, and freedom about care is a different kind of cage. Her church does not have windows. She will not be caged, says, you will find me, mind me out of yourself, find every joy in every, find joy in every inch of your black beauty. So beauty does not need the word black in front of it to describe you, the carefree black girl loves. She loves. She loves me. I'm still learning how, and she loves you. Knows we're all just a product of this world, learning and unlearning ourselves until it all makes sense, and we can cradle each other in our moonlight hands and fall asleep curled together under the yew tree. Thank you. I remember I had a hard time with that project in regards to Tyler Grafton Tyler Brown being in his time being like thought of as as a white man for most of his life and being this quote-unquote white passing and what that means and then me and myself as a black artist and being like what does it mean to be a black artist like does that mean everything I have to do has to be about blackness but like it's gonna shine through regardless and so it's kind of a combination of that thought process and not wanting to be that like passive happy black person who like every person can go to and she's not gonna make them feel bad about themselves because of the system um but also making work that (laughs) matters um so I think that's why there was the hallway and the doors just kind of passing through and just seeing what's there and who am I and who am I in relation to art and what is this and how do we move forward from this fear that's for me what was so interesting about the project that you and um, Charles and and Bernice did at the at the Legacy was that um, it crossed disciplines in that way and um, it seemed completely natural. I feel like sometimes we do that in the space of the the museum and mm-hmm. uh, it feels more like it's about. Um, kind of cross-disciplinary outreach or something, whereas whereas in that context, because there was this sort of strong underpinning of the questions at the basis of of all of the work, like it all just made sense together. It was a, a parallel narrative moment for me. Okay. 
Yeah, so I'll talk a little bit about the project at the Legacy Gallery. So we were asked to respond to artist Grafton Tyler Brown, who um, who was you know a very early artist um, in BC's history from um, originally from the states, who came up um, a, you know BC's first black artist, although he kind of passed as white often, and sort of looking into his history. Um, started thinking about how people knew him and um, and largely this kind of entire history is extrapolated from this sort of census data um, wh- how he identified himself through various censuses censuses where he moved um, and then as well re- with reference to his his particular paintings um, which but they aren't particularly autobiographical there's no um, so this kind of history of him is being extrapolated and um, partially because it wasn't recorded. You know, there's no, um, as opposed to, to other artists that might have had um, journals or diaries that people kept and looked into, he, um, that didn't exist. So there was a sort of big extrapolated history um, from him. And I started to just think about how, how we know, how we think we know people today and what, what the equivalent of the census was. Um, so I did two things in the gallery. One was a literal census of the people in the gallery, um, where I had volunteers go around with a survey. A survey looked at um, a survey looked at their um, kind of cultural history, um, at the so their history of migration of their family, um, also their relationship to colonialism and to slavery, um, either as um, on either side of that, um, whether whether their family had participated in in colonization or as colonized or um, enslaved or were were enslaved, um, so and that was really just a frame to get people to think about the, themselves in those terms, um, and then I took cheek swabs of everybody in the gallery, um, and um, then essentially did an interview. With, um, with the genetic genetic material that was in that in those cheek swabs, um, and I mean the process was I would look at the survey data, get a, gather a little bit of information. I would take the cheek swabs, and then I would know a little bit about about the history. Um, I was kind of going back to the period of history where Grafton Tyler Brown lived, and I you know did some research into that, and then would kind of interview uh, a kind of fictitious character from the past um, that represented the, the, the sort of genetic legacy of, of this person. Um, and, um, you know, it was a one, the, as far as the audience was concerned, they would only really hear my my side of the interview so it was just asking the questions but from the nature of the questions you could gather um, the nature of the res- of the responses and I did that in the actor boy character who again is this sort of character from the future he's a character that um, you know from this sort of more utopic future that is coming back into our present and just a trying to understand it and also trying to disrupt some of um, and now it's largely some of the, the expanded no, people especially racism and also some of the or um, intermarried kind of and ecological challenges that we're, we're and now it's facing not there's one historian that's continued to do work on it um, but but it's not part of the narrative of of PEI in any way and so I wanted to kind of bring that bring that memory back so I'm Doing, I'm doing a couple of things in PEI. One, I'm going there in about a week and a half, and I'll be interviewing people's genetic memories again, but with specific reference to the to the bog, because there is, you know, there is actively a genetic trace of people who either, um, you know, either had interactions as former slave owners or um, members of that community. Um, so I'll be going doing that again. Um, I'm also kind of trying to revive the ecological memory of of the bog. So I, um, the I'm, later on, I'll be constructing this installation using bird song. Um, so songbirds that would have been present um, at the bog at that 
at that time I'm um, going to be using those and the in the kind of mythology of Actor Boy, the the bird song is actually a, his kind of mode of time travel. It's it it is the bird song's the the mechanism or the tool that folds time in on itself um, and allows him to jump between either points in time or different timelines. So he's he's from you know a timeline that extends from from emancipation. How does he get to our timeline? Um, that's through through bird song. Um, and it, it's a way of um, it's a way of connecting our potential for like what futures we ha have access to to our current ecological crisis. constructed by our minds, not by time itself. So I think there's this lovely thing about artwork and about theater and dance or, you know, uh, performance in general is that we can decide how time functions for us, with us. Um, so, yeah, there's something. And I think, like, like you said, like some of the things that happen to our bodies, like I think there's some postures or there's some reactions in the body that like um, you know this is always my example many many years ago I was on the subway in Toronto when I lived there a man sat down on the subway he smelled his fingers and then made a yucky face and everybody on the subway car was super grossed out <laughs> right so I think there's this thing that like there are things it's it there's trend the transmission between bodies is palpable and real and so I really believe like movement and choreography can be used as an empathic act and a, like a way to feel each other. I think for me, dance is sort of everywhere and um, like I'm most interested in the dances that are already existing and, and in particular like social choreographies. So although I was like classic, like I did ballet training and modern training and jazz, you know, I did all of these things to learn how to be um, extraordinary. I'm really much more interested in what's ordinary. Um, so how we line up, how we uh, wait for the bus, um, whether or not we hold a door for someone, um, sort of the micro movements that I think that I associate with like a feeling body, like a body feeling where they are. So for me, it's that's like that. Those are the dances that I, I, I'm like kind of obsessed with actually, because I feel like that's how I understand what's happening around me. Like I find the world to be unbelievably overwhelming and confusing and and wonderful and horrendous. <laughs> but I feel like I can really understand it through my body and other people's bodies. And it's, it's definitely some sort of, um, uh, here goes the no sleeping mama, um, like projection, what I think I'm seeing, but nonetheless, it's real for me, you know? Uh, and I just like what anybody feels is happening for them. Uh, I guess Yvonne Rainer says feelings are facts, right? And like, that's the truth. So I guess that's where dance lives for me. And and, um, and then I use like all this sort of formal training I had to sort of distill the difference between a finger wagging or a finger pointing, you know, like, uh, different, different, um, how we use force, how we use our skeleton, how we use um, our muscles, how we use intent, like, ha like sort of the physical breakdown of these like very simple gestures. Um, and then there's all sorts of things to do with those gestures <laughs> later. But yeah, I think dance for me is so many, so many, like it's almost everything, you know, it can be everything. Um, uh, but not anything somehow, but that's like a different discussion altogether, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, so with the, the 1 to 100, we're really working with using 100 incremental movements to move from having our hands by our side into the hands up, don't shoot position. So we're trying to find as many movements as we can between those, or many postures, gestures, ways to place our hands that are ambiguous or super clear that feel like they're on the way 
to from having your hands by your side to hands up, don't shoot. And we're trying to, so it is just, you know, moving your hand, turning over your wrist, or like sticking a finger up in the air. And the idea is for it to move sort of from low to high, like that the arms, and that the posture of the chest and the gaze can move with or against the movements that we're doing. So with each, num- when we count each number, we shift our we shift either a part of our body or a whole body to, to organize our body in a way that's legible or illegible. There's this transmission between bodies when we're talking about time that I think is really immediate. Um, like we feel someone, Laurie and I have been talking, telling this story about a woman we saw in the coffee shop the other day who walked really quickly and her body really far forward. And the pace with which she, she walked made us project that she may have some sort of problem perhaps or an issue because of the speed and the speed with which she was walking in a pace in a space where no one was walking at that that time so this is when we started to really think about normative non-normative timing what's acceptable what's not acceptable you know all these these types of like what we accept and what we won't accept so this idea of like time shifting uh like in what time we do things uh, deciding whether or not we can be accepted, you know, uh, in in a daily life. But on the stage, we we're a lot like we're given permission to play with time, or in performance or in art making because they've already we've already been sort of put in the weirdo category, uh, <laughs> and we get to hang out over there, and they're like, oh, they're artists. Uh, yeah. The past weekend, I was at an event called Primary Colors which was a gathering of um, primarily indigenous artists and people involved in the cultural realm and um, artists and people involved in the cultural realm who are people of color. And um, one of the things that I got to participate in was a workshop called the Ancestors Workshop, which is something that has been developed by a woman named Diane Roberts, who is a storyteller and dramaturge, which is a word that I love, and uh, so, you know, a theater person. But this is something that she's developed, and um, I think we were probably doing a truncated version of it Mm -hmm. in the context of of this gathering slash uh, kind of conference-like event. Um, but what she does is you do sort of movement exercises to kind of loosen up, but then she sort of talks you through this process of thinking about an ancestor, and you're supposed to be thinking about somebody specific. And then um, she kind of walks you through finding where that ancestor resides in your body and then you um, create movements or gestures based on having made that connection with the ancestor and the gestures are a gesture of joy, a gesture of sorrow and a gesture of ceremony and then you know sort there are probably 15 people in the room or there were 15 people in the room in this case and um, you're all sort of rolling around, moving around with your eyes closed. You don't know what anybody else is doing. And then you get into a circle and you do your gestures. Everybody does their joy gesture. Everybody does their sorrow. Everybody does their ceremony. Mm-hmm. And then um, we talked about where those gestures had come from. And it was really interesting um, to have so many people from so many backgrounds and experiences in the room and to realize how many how much overlap there was in the stories we were telling how much overlap there was in the way the gesture came out and I like to think that it was coming out as opposed to being sort of conceived right gesture um so I I believe very strongly, um, as Justine talks about, that um, that our ancestors reside 
in our bodies, mm-hmm. and that that's why, um, you know, despite the fact that uh, the black experience is um, a diasporic experience, and that we've been spread all over the globe, and mm-hmm. m- most of those people in diasporas have, um, or most of those people exist in what appear to be new and very strong and dynamic cultures Mm -hmm. that we see connections. Um, You know, sometimes it's it's, um, a kind of knowing exchange, like with music, moving back and forth, but I think there are things that exist in our bodies that that, uh, you know, I could be here, you could be in the States, somebody can be in the Caribbean, somebody can be in England, and it's all going to sort of come out in similar ways. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. <laughs> this is a poem in four parts. Uh, it's called How to Plant an Olive Tree. Part one. So here I am again. Talking to myself. Myself, she says, shh. So here I am again. Talking memory. Talking future. Talking the difference between the two is talking liver. Talking black licorice. Talking green olive pits. Talking, 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 talking. No, I don't ever get tired of my voice. I get tired of myself. She says, mm-hmm. So here I am again. All pink lipstick and black licorice trying to make my skin fit. I took a dare, took a tumble, tumble in the dryer, learned dawn by sunset, I was dry clean only, yes, I dared myself, yes, she took the bait, yes, I'm still talking about the difference between mouths, her says, shh, when did you acquire such bitter taste? I say, short answer, I got it from my mother. She taught you can only trust yourself. I learned I am so reckless. Yes, I got that from her too. Long answer. I watched myself die. Part two. If I were a goddess. Addendum. I am a goddess. But if I were a goddess who required ritualistic sacrifice, I would eat women's shame. I would devour each rotten thought like fruit, like sweet juice off my lips, like her lips. Watch them closely. She is praying to a deity that finds her nothing short of holy. Hallelujah. Amen. Again, she is talking to herself, making a blessing of the dead pieces she cut out of her knees, wrapped them in the memory of her future pride. I have never received such a gift as these, the worst parts of another person. That's what love is. Wrapped up tenderly in rags, she said, take this meal to riches, goddess. Eat my olive, eat my liver, eat my bitter black licorice better. I can't trust my mouth to stomach me anymore. And if I were her goddess, I would take her fondly wrapped shame and place it to my lips. Seep her bitterness into the gentle press of me and whisper, shh. I would cradle it in my arms, kiss it and gift it back to me. Part three. So here I am again, talking to myself, again, 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 talking, 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 talking. Myself says, shh. Let the silence breathe. Let the breath become thought. Too much thought becomes too little action. Try again, says, shh. Let the silence breathe. Little action unwrap your offering see your shame see yourself too much thought try again Shh. unwrap your shame see your goddess yes yourself yes dead knees swinging yes growing yes a tree yes olives yes bitter yes fading yes fading yes fading part four i'm officially woman The young adult me died two months ago and I went blind and ran away to Tokyo. True story. I've planted an olive tree in her decomposing body, growing peace out of her suffering, forgiveness in her soul. My soul is confronting healing and I am woman now, so I can't back down because of fear of bitter, better things. There is tenderness in everything and I used to hate olives. 
and liver and licorice, but cycles are to be repeated. And my mother loves these things, and I love her slowly, tenderly, like a goddess kiss or skin that fits. Finally. So, here I am, talking to myself, or praying, or feeding, or healing, or being goddess in woman's skin. Yeah, I, um, it's been interesting how Afrofuturism has come up as, um, as such a kind of force now, and, and I've been thinking a lot about why that is, and also what, um, you know, black people in particular, and people of color, indigenous communities have to bring with that discussion about the future. Um, and funnily enough, I find often the work, although it, it can deal with trauma and so on, there, there's, a, there's often a little bit of optimism um, to the work. And it's kind of in contrast to some of the pessimism and the kind of ap um, apocalyptic vision that um, that other white or white Western artists might have, and in thinking about this, I kind of think it's because we've already been we are post-apocalyptic. Um, you know, we we've already been through our apocalypse either through through slavery or the ravages of colonialism. I mean. You know, we're living in a country that that looks like an extension of Europe, um, yet it was inhabited by a, a, a completely different culture um, for eons. And that the reason it looks like an extension of Europe now is because of an apocalypse. It's yeah. because of a, a, a genocide, um, a cultural extermination. And the cultures that have survived that, they are post-apocalyptic cultures, mm -hmm. and therefore they can have a vision of the future which is different for the for the, for Western culture, which very much sees itself as approaching its, its apocalypse um, now. So I I think being able to carry that vision of of the post-apocalypse is actually really essential right now because in in our imaginary, if you look at you know look at um, films that you know how the how the future is dealt with. There's this sort of idea that you know things are closing in, um, and we're headed towards that apocalypse. I feel like for other communities, there's a sense that actually things can open up. And the balls, um, we were looking, uh, Laurie brought up those uh, Longo paintings of people in suits where he would throw a tennis ball at someone in a suit and then take a photograph of them dodging the ball and then he would paint this person in a suit like dodging a ball. So we were like, oh, that was, she was, because we're not really good at moving, like around, we just keep our feet in one place, like we don't like to travel, you know, you're supposed to travel when you make dances, but we, neither of us are very good at it. I think both of us have dances where maybe we take four steps, and not, you know, it's like ridiculous. So we thought, oh, maybe this will get us moving. And then in the end, we stood still. So uh, Lori lobs balls at me with while I stand there with my eyes closed. So she just throws balls at me, trying to miss me. She's really trying to miss me, but she's not a, a great shot, as she said. And when I do it to her, I am also not a great shot. So we hit each other sometimes. But I try and stand there as open in my body as possible with my eyes closed while she throws balls, uh, trying to cl closely miss me. Uh, but I, 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 it's very hard to keep my body relaxed. <laughs> very, very hard. Uh, yeah, and so we were thinking about maybe vulnerability and um, this idea of like trusting power in hopes that power is going to meet you and meet you, and whether or not it does is, you know, so many. Yeah, we don't. That's we don't know, or it, we've been. It's been proven that sometimes it doesn't, and sometimes it does. You know, but. Uh, 
we've been telling a lot of stories of uh, run-ins we've had with police or uh, micro or macro aggressions and like how those are some of the powers that we've been uh, have met us or not met us or um, elevated us or dropped us or you know so I guess it's a little bit maybe maybe an expression of that I'm kind of just figuring this out as I'm talking to you to be perfectly honest but it was about this sort of just being there available um, and to trust that you're not gonna get pummeled <laughs> but sometimes I get hit Yes. And that's okay. Yes. Because she doesn't, she's not trying to hurt me. Yes. And I guess that's also the point is between us, there's a certain amount of trust. To try and let my body be the archive for the work that I make or the body of the people that I'm lucky enough to work with to be the archive of the work I make. And I've also used my work to archive other people's bodies through the people that I work with. And anyways, it goes on and on and on. I hold, like, I mean, I hold my mother's body in my body, and she holds me in her body still, you know. Uh, now that I have a son, I, like, I, I feel that, like, very, very specifically. But I think the work, the way we're using time, if we're going to talk about, like, choreographic devices, because um, we've, you know, sort of worked through this idea of tropes, <laughs> uh, is that we're working with non-normative time, right? So we're not doing, like, a real, like, a real time or, or you know we're either kind of herky-jerky in this kind of um, fractured you used the word fractured before when we were speaking sort of ways we can kind of like splinter time or elongate it I'm always looking for you know it was Ashton Crawley who talks about like the otherwise the otherwise and for me that's a real afrofuturistic kind of or it fits into this idea of afrofuturism this like what's the otherwise like what's that other thing that's hanging out that we're not dealing with because it doesn't fit like specific structures, tidy structures, um, you know? And, uh, and he says like, uh, what did he say? Vibration is a fact of matter. And like that just made my head like almost pop right off. Right? <laughs> I was like, ah, that's what I've been saying, transmission between bodies. But you know, he's so much more eloquent than I could ever be. Um, but for me, Afrofuturism becomes the otherwise. Like, what if we thought about, what if we ignored all the thoughts we've always had about structures and power and being in the world and, and just said, let's just do this whole other thing over here. Then what does it all look like? So, um, and this is why also I, I reject ephemerality because I, for me, ephemerality becomes a way to add thingness and it becomes like an objectifying, it becomes like a process of objectification again, and, and uh, sort of putting something in a tidy jar and up on a shelf, oh, it's ephemeral, it goes over there. Um, and, and there's something about Afrofuturism, because if it's, if we're, if we're back, like if we're back here and it's up there, then there's, you know, there's this, this ever living otherwise, you know, that we can be tapping it, like that we can be like, just like, putting our, like, holding on to. Yeah. Like, we can be riding a different, like, like, we can go to the right. We don't all have to go forward, you know? And, yeah, <laughs> like, it's it's all happening in this moment. It's not, it's not cons like, already inscribed. Yes. Um, so I think it's about, like, possibility. Thank you to Charles Campbell, Justine Chambers, Ruby Smith-Diaz, Michelle Jakes, and Anne Bernice Thomas, as well as executive producer Katie Sage, production support Laura Steele, and for the original music contributions of artist Jeff Ellen. Artscape has been made possible with generous support from the BC Arts Council.